You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. Today's episode is a live recording from a SOCAP 365 event that took place in Philadelphia in October of 2018. The topic for this conversation is investing to end poverty. Poverty is an intractable issue in Philadelphia, where the poverty level has been stuck at over 25% of the population for decades. That is the highest poverty level for any of the major metro areas in the U.S., and unfortunately, it isn't showing signs of improvement. We gathered a group of speakers that represent a wide range of organizations in the Philadelphia area and that have different approaches to addressing and alleviating poverty. Our moderator, Noelle St. Clair, is a community development advisor for the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia and brings a great perspective on the challenges around addressing poverty and the necessity of engaging all stakeholders, the public sector, private sector, government, all to seek creative solutions. Noelle is joined by Anne Beauvaird-Nevins of PIDC, Philadelphia's Public-Private Economic Development Corporation, by Gabe Manduano, founder and CEO of Philly-based social enterprise Wash Cycle Laundry, Omar Woodard, Executive Director of the Greenlight Fund, a nonprofit venture capital firm focused on improving economic mobility, Jody Rainout from Esperanza, a 30-year-old organization focused specifically on the Hunting Park neighborhood of Philadelphia, and Alexis McCarthy from the Triskelis Foundation. This event was hosted by FS Investments, and we're so grateful for the leadership of Impact PHL and ICSVN, Investor Circle Social Venture Network, who partnered with us on this event and who keep a strong impact conversation going on in Philadelphia year-round. I encourage you to sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net to learn about SOCAP 365 events near you and for year-round articles and conversation focused on the intersection of money and meaning. So let's jump right into the panel. I'm really excited about this conversation. My name is Noelle St. Clair, and I'm Community Development Advisor and Outreach Manager at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Um, so oftentimes I meet people and, you know, what do you do? I work for the Federal Reserve and the first question is always around interest rates. Everything I say tonight is my opinion and not those of the Federal Reserve System or Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Um, but my work at the Federal Reserve is really around poverty reduction. So I was excited that this conversation came together, the work that Impact PHL has been doing around bringing this impact economy together um, is something that's uh, a passion for me. Um, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, we are interested in fostering economic growth for our region, and we understand that we cannot do that if uh, we live in a city that one in four people are in poverty. So uh, my team in community development is really interested in how do we foster pathways of economic mobility um, for people to move out of poverty and contribute to the economy in more meaningful ways. So just to level set before we jump into this all-star panel, um, lots of questions for them. I'm sure you have lots of questions for them as well. And I'm not going to share full bios. They're available on the events page. Um, but we'll introduce each person as we jump into the conversation. But um, some of you may have seen a Philadelphia Inquirer article that came out earlier this year when um, the census data was updated in September. So it was really highlighting that while around the country incomes are rising, in Philadelphia they're actually falling. Um, in 2017, Philadelphia's median household income dropped 4%. And as many of you know, a familiar statistic that Philadelphia's poverty rate remains stuck at 25.7%, making Philadelphia the poorest of the largest, most populous cities. Um, so this, and the rate of deep poverty, which is a measure of people living at 50% of the poverty line or less, rose from 12% to 14% in 2017. So, um, you know, this is a very serious issue in our, our city and one that I think requires collaboration between public, nonprofit, private stakeholders, uh, and really requires us to do some shifting in perspectives and how we see this work. So to jump right in, um, one of those shifts that I think the panel would like to just explore is how do we strive for economic mobility for all residents versus simply economic growth 
for our region. And for that question, I'll turn to Ann Nevins, uh, Chief Strategy and Communications Officer at PIDC, the city's public-private economic development corporation, um, to tell us about ways to sustain and accelerate the city's growth while providing opportunities to the city's residents. Thank you so much, Noelle. Um, and thank you, everybody, for being here tonight for this conversation. You know, I think that Noelle set up the question really well in terms of this um, great challenge and opportunity that we have in Philadelphia right now. One of the things that we talk a lot about at PIDC is the fact that in the context of a national and a global economy that's doing relatively well right now, um, and in the context of Philadelphia within that being a place that for many decades saw decline and was really in a position of managing decline. We now, for the last decade or so, have seen growth in terms of population and in terms of jobs, not um, to the levels that we would need it to be, um, but we have been going at least in the right direction. And so thinking about how do we actually sustain and accelerate that growth while at the same time identifying new strategies to ensure that that growth is more equitably and inclusively distributed throughout all neighborhoods and uh, communities and people within our city, trying to get at that 25.7% poverty rate, which has been intractable for, again, many decades. You know, Philadelphia is the only persistent poverty county in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that's been the case for 30 years. So this is not something, you know, that has an easy fix. Um, but I think what we are telling ourselves right now is that if at a time when Philadelphia's population is growing, when our job base is growing, when our numbers of visitors and people that are coming to see our city are growing, when we are, you know, in a position of, um, you know, getting accolades on everything from, you know, a Super Bowl winning football team to, you know, making the short list for Amazon or the Army Futures Command. If we can't now, um, you know, make strides to trying to tackle and address the issues around equity and inclusion, we're going to have a lot harder time um, if we are coming to a situation where the national economy, the global economy, and the local economy are not growing. So um, first and foremost, I think we focus a lot on how do we sustain and ideally accelerate the growth um, that we see uh, happening in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, our three core strategies that we pursue around that each have different elements of um, kind of equity and inclusion built into them already in some ways, and in others we're really trying to work on and strengthen that. So the three things that you know we focus on that I think can hopefully move the needle on on this in conjunction with many other efforts around education, around healthcare, around you know the the myriad of issues that have to be addressed simultaneously um, to get at poverty, you know, we really focus on investing in growing businesses. And that particularly means small businesses. I think that, you know, everybody thinks about the Amazons and we certainly, you know, think about them too, in terms of, of going after those types of opportunities when they arise like once ever. Um, but day to day, the vast majority of our work and our efforts are primarily focused around supporting growing businesses in terms of financial capital, business support services, and connecting those two resources to help get companies where they need to go. In the last five years, we've made about 415 business loans. Those have been, you know, 56% of those have been to minority and women borrowers, and that's a targeted focus for us. We're constantly working on product development in terms of understanding the marketplace and how can we do better to get at the needs of small businesses located in every zip code of our city to try to help them to grow because that will be, you know, kind of the backbone of, of continued growth in the city and in all the neighborhoods. We think of the same thing around our project financing resources in terms of the capital for larger scale development projects, companies like Shift Capital and Brian Murray's here um, who are doing larger scale projects in neighborhoods like Kensington um, where they're doing um, you know, development that is not necessarily going to have the same level of a market rate return that you would get from 
developing this wonderful, beautiful building. Um, and, you know, you need to have both of those things happening in a city. So we try to work with, um, you know, developers like Brian in neighborhoods that are trying to um, create new commercial and industrial business activity in those neighborhoods and employ local residents. And then we think about, you know, the real estate and the physical development of the city around creating workplaces for the future. That's places like the Navy Yard, the Lower Schuylkill River District, industrial parks um, and industrial development sites around the city where we specifically try to target those types of um, uses that are going to provide job opportunities today while we also think about um, you know the the ways in which um, those jobs may change um, 15 five 15 you know 30 years from now and try to think about how can we plan for growth and development in an age of automation um, uh, artificial intelligence what are the jobs of the future going to be and how can we look ahead and try to best position Philadelphia and Philadelphians to have access to those job opportunities. So those are the things that we're thinking about on that on that topic in terms of trying to tie growth together with equity and inclusion. Thanks, Anne. That was really helpful. Um, and you know, you talked a lot about financing and access to capital for small businesses. So it seems natural to turn to Gabe Mondohano, who is a, a, a founder of a company, Wash Cycle Laundry. And Gabe, I'm interested if you could share with everyone when you have a company that strives for more than just financial return, really to have a deep social impact locally. Um, what does that mean for you as a company and how you think about the types of investment you seek and, and where do you go to find that capital? Uh, Washtec Laundry is a uh, social enterprise. Um, we're triple bottom lines. So we're a commercial laundry service. Uh, we work with small and big businesses um, here in Philadelphia and also in Washington, D.C. and, and uh, in Boston uh, and Worcester, Massachusetts. We've been around for eight years now, have a really diverse cap table. So I feel like we've got a lot of different types of capital that have come in at different stages uh, throughout our growth period. Um, oh, I should say our, our social impact is, is focused on creating upwardly mobile pathways for vulnerable adults, uh, um, or upwardly mobile career pathways for vulnerable adults, and principally folks who are uh, have histories of incarceration or homelessness um, uh, or, or, or TANF recipients. Um, and so I... I um, you know, I, I think that um, you know, th there's a there's an intersection of. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different types of social enterprises, and they have different types of capital needs. Um, th there's a sort of a Venn diagram if you had sort of impact enterprises and sort of like main street industries. So you know, it's a bakery, but we employ uh, or and we employ um, uh, 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 returning citizens, or it's a laundry and we employ returning citizens, or we're a commercial janitorial service and we employ returning citizens. So th that variety of you know those folks who are sort of in that part of the Venn diagram, um, I, I think that those are are, are are businesses that have a really unique set of, of capital needs because you can't just take a venture capital model and say oh well like this is innovative too so let's take the innovation finance model and like pop it on top of there because at the end of the day you have a bakery or a commercial laundry service or a commercial janitorial co you know, cleaning company uh, that, that is innovative in many respects, but it is going to have industry, it's going to have financial performance that mirrors that of its industry. Um, and, and so, I mean, there's a reason why venture capitalists don't often fund uh, laundry companies and, and uh, uh, you know, <laughs> um, sorry to all the folks who are closer to the venture capital world who have funded Lost Cycle Laundry. No, I, I, uh, 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 but there are challenges to that. Um, I, I mean, there's lots of good, re there are challenges, there's lots of good reasons what, to, to, to have risk capital in this model. I'll get to that in a sec, but there's challenges, right? Um, you know, at the same time, you can't just sort of say, well, every other laundry company went to the, you know, to, to the bank to get an SBA loan. Because um, the reality is that there there are challenges and expenses. I, I mean, it's 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 not that like you, you don't make a successful social enterprise with good intentions. You know, it, it, so I mean, it, it takes resources and thought and, and frankly time to make mistakes. Uh, we we make all sorts of mistakes, and I'm in the middle of like you know <laughs> a big mistake that happened in July. Uh, so so like you know, it, it, there's a lot of of things, and like, so you you can't just say like um, you know, okay, well you know, you're a, a social impact laundry company, go get financed like every single other laundry company gets financed too, right? Um, and, and so I guess what I'm saying is like different, different capital for different stages. Um, we, we took equity risk capital early on um, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of their return has been provided on by like later stage capital uh, that has, it, it's all been patient, it's all been impact oriented. Um, 
I think the, the biggest opportunity for uh, businesses like ours is for um, sort of debt-like or debt equity hybrid capital that, that is uh, focused on sort of revenue-based repayment uh, uh, methods, um, you know, uh, because I think that's like relatively rare in, in, um, uh, um, in, 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 um, uh, in this particular market. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for risk capital that um, you know can have its returns enhanced by non-dilutive capital that that follows on. So the, the most recent transaction we did that brought us into Boston, we had a, a client who was very interested in our social impact and awarded us a huge contract that will triple our size because of that. Um, we had a um, what well, was called the Massachusetts Housing Investment Corporation, so a, a CDFI um, backed by the Boston Federal Reserve, um, put together a two and a half million dollar new, market, new markets tax credit deal. Um, uh, in order to finance most of the hard costs. Uh, and we had risk capital, risk equity capital, um, uh, provide the equity that we needed to do that and some of the working capital. Um, and, and, um, you know, and, and their return is going to be um, you know, in large part because of, of that leverage. So I, I think that you know, every, every business is a little dip, bit different, but you know, businesses like ours, they need a variety of different types of capital. I think what's missing most in the Philadelphia market is that type of capital, what I would call enterprise growth capital. So you know, if you're a social enterprise and you need to hire your first director of um, you know, social impact, or you need to hire your first director of marketing, um, you're, you're not going to do that with a receivables loan. You're not going to do that with something that's backed by real estate collateral. You're going to do that with risk capital. Uh, and, 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 and there needs to be more of that for this particular type of enterprise in this market. So listening to you speak, I often hear that there's not a shortage of capital, but really a scarcity of um, risk tolerance mm. to promote this work. So um, Omar Woodard, Executive Director of Greenlight Fund, um, really interested in how you all have thought about venture philanthropy as taking on that risk capital and using it um, to really scale enterprises that have had impact in, in other geographies. If you could share a bit about that work and the approach. Sure, sure. thank you for that. Um, so the Greenlight Fund was founded in Boston about 13 years ago, and uh, the, um, the model was founded by a venture capitalist named John Simon. So we're venture philanthropy, not just because we were founded by a venture capitalist or we're largely funded by VC and private equity investors. It's because the process that we go through um, mirrors a blended private equity model. We care deeply about management teams. We care deeply about the strength of a board of an organization. We care deeply about the alignment between a senior management and the board in terms of how they're thinking about expansion and replication of a model. So we're looking for mature organizations, five to 50 million typically, um, that, are, that, are, that are thinking clearly about what their impact will be, not just in Oakland or in Austin, Texas, but in Atlanta, Miami, Philadelphia, and so on. So those are the types of organizations we look at. Um, but our venture philanthropy approach is risk capital. We are a foundation. We operate as a grant maker with no endowment. And so what that means is our level of risk, because we, our level of risk is incredibly high, we spend a lot of our time focused on mitigating those risks. And to do so, we employ a kind of a cross-sector approach where we bring, bring business executives, investors, foundation executives, and nonprofit executives, community leaders, all in a room uh, to identify the, the, the priority issue areas uh, in high-poverty neighborhoods in the city, um, to identify uh, the local landscape and understand what's, what works well in Philadelphia when it comes to poverty, poverty alleviation and what doesn't, where the gaps are. And then we scout nationally. And because we have a national network in eight sites now and growing, uh, we uh, have access to communities all over the country who are more than happy to elevate the things that have solved big social problems in their communities. And what we try to do uh, is identify if it's uh, going to be a local fit in Philadelphia. And if, it's there, if there's a pathway to long-term sustainability in Philadelphia. And so we spend a lot of our time not just understanding what the issues are in high poverty uh, area sections of the city, but also working across sector to make sure that whatever we do bring to the city solves the, the issue that we uh, identified in the first place, an issue that was identified in partnership with the community, not, uh, not with the community, we're not asking the community later. And what we also do once we bring in that organization is we invest over a three to four year period about six to $800,000 um, to help that organization grow and scale quickly. So for example, in that first year, you have to hire the director of marketing and so on. Where do you get that capital? We, if we're investing in a social enterprise, uh, that first, two, that first year, $200,000 tied to a series of, of metrics um, or benchmarks, but we know it's, it's unrestricted. 
And we're not interested in funding a program. We're interested in funding a strong model with proven success to change and transform outcomes for low-income children, youth, and families in the city we're in. So you know, it, it, it is risky. Um, it's especially risky for an organization with, that grants money with no endowment because we care about success and failure. Uh, and if we make a bad investment, uh, can we get investors to come back and invest in us again? Uh, now, I will say, we say investors, we say investments. Um, we are a 501c3. And it's important for us to take that language of investment because it connotes partnership, it connotes accountability, mutual accountability, um, and it connotes a long-term interest in mutual value creation. And so um, we believe deeply that the nonprofit sector the social, and social enterprises uh, that operate in it and alongside it, um, uh, we need to be thinking that way in order to transform outcomes for the, for, for the people we care most about. Um, it's, we've had some success in raising, in raising dollars. Um, we're now on our third fund, uh, which is a $3.5 million fund, and we are, we are 90% of the way there. Um, so there's clearly a demand um, and interest in working with venture philanthropy of our size that targets issues specifically year after year and tries to fill a gap where we find it. And there is a growing community of venture capital, private equity, entrepreneurs, um, investors who are interested in engaging in this type of philanthropy because it's a way, if you think about it, um, instead of investing in an individual organization, can I put my money in a mutual fund of sorts uh, that's able to invest in a, in a portfolio of organizations across multiple issue areas, all of which focused on uh, bringing evidence-based uh, uh, evidence-based programs uh, to high poverty areas in the city. So that's my board member, Richard Binswanger, uh, and uh, and we and, and at uh, we just ended our board meeting at five o'clock. Um, in, in, in addition to the private equity and venture capital, of, of course, part of what we do is put our network to work. Um, hold on one second. We put our network to work uh, on behalf of the organization we bring in. And so it's incredibly hard for a new business or a new nonprofit to move into a new market. I think everyone un understands why. You don't know who the right people to talk to. You don't know the players. You don't know whose toes you're going to step on or not. And so part of our role in our 30-person advisory committee, the cross-sector that I mentioned, are able to help organizations and the leaders of those organizations kind of have a smooth glide path into the city of Philadelphia. We can connect them to the mayor. We can connect them to other funders. We can connect them to talent that they need to help identify leadership to grow and scale their business. So um, we do uh, a lot of the work we do is the non-monetary stuff, to be quite honest. Um, but it's as important, particularly in a nonprofit space, to provide both the, the, the upfront investment that's unrestricted, uh, the, that, that really risk capital, but also uh, to put our network to work on behalf of the organization so they can grow scale successfully uh, and last in Philadelphia for long periods of time. So we're also joined by Joni Raynow, Vice President of Administration for Esperanza USA or for Esperanza US, I apologize. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really interested, Omar, in how you talked about the importance of framing this as an investment and what that means for the model. I think similarly, Jody, I've heard you talk about the importance of approaching the work um, in an asset-based way. So not seeing the challenges, but seeing how do we maximize um, opportunities and potential here, but also the importance of understanding local context. So I'm wondering from your work, if we're thinking about investing in poverty, how do we do that in a way, especially when we're looking at place-based strategies, that really builds wealth in places versus extracting wealth from places? Sure. Thanks for that, Noel. And um, I appreciate, uh, obviously, everyone in the audience here spending your time hearing us talk about our different models. Um, for those that may not know Esperanza, uh, just by way of context, we are uh, differently than Omar in terms of... Um, having a broad portfolio across a geography. Esperanza's model is to be place-based uh, and to focus on a particular neighborhood in Philadelphia, and that's uh, Hunting Park, which is North Philadelphia, almost where Fifth Street meets the boulevard. We invite you all to come and visit us anytime. Uh, and we've been there for 32 years. Um, John actually mentioned earlier in his introduction the idea of an uh, ecosystem approach to impact. Uh, and that's something that, that we've been building sort of step by step um, in very much an asset-based uh, model. And Noel, what, what we mean by that is a couple of things. I mean, um, we know that uh, the presence of institutions, the anchor institutions that are able to uh, provide the foundation from which programs, services, initiatives, et cetera, can grow, that those are incredibly important that the asset ownership uh, that has to be resident in uh, low-income communities, whether that's 
uh, helping to promote individual assets or the assets of the community-based and community-oriented or nonprofit organizations uh, that can serve on their behalf, that those are really the, the two kinds of asset building that we're doing. And, and so we've done that uh, at Esperanza, and I'm, there are, of course, other models. We, we represent one nonprofit community development corporation, but you, know, you could find uh, examples of plenty of others who similarly uh, focus on developing charter schools, uh, real estate development, both residential and commercial. Uh, we um, help support the, the commercial activity in our business corridors in Hunting Park, as well as uh, attract new businesses, and provide the supports uh, that both existing and new businesses need to thrive. Um, we, we have a 17-acre campus where 450 employees, and uh, it'll be many more by this, uh, this time next year, uh, are working on building, uh, literally constructing, the, the facilities and physical plant that we need uh, from which to meet you know, a variety uh, of the kinds of needs that our low-income community members face, whether, uh, the, you know, that's from affordable housing to financial literacy education, performing arts. Uh, we're, we're about to open a theater uh, uh, in December um, uh, that'll be part of a larger performing arts center. And so, so when we say uh, asset-based and asset-building, we mean lit literally, right? And that um, that, uh, wealth, that wealth creation engine um, is one very important aspect. Now, obviously, that, that takes a tremendous amount of time, um, and we uh, simultaneously are focused on the, the asset building uh, for individual people and their families, right? And, and so um, we know, uh, research uh, has, has shown us that, that uh, people, families with uh, assets, as much as income level, right, asset ownership uh, impacts how people fare uh, when they experience, uh, you know, negative circumstances in life and how they're able to weather those storms. Um, and, and so it's uh, the individual assets uh, around um, home ownership, around creating cash flow mechanisms for greater cash flow and savings, et cetera. And so, so we really take this very broad portfolio approach, but in a community context uh, where we can build um, the community cohesion, we can build community involvement in the process. Um, and and I, I also want to say that uh, asset-based for us means um, in, in sort of the other way of approaching the definition, the building on strength of the community, right? And that, um, that the asset-based approach is to go and find the resources, strengths, uh, and, and existing networks and, and energies and efforts of the people that are in our local community, find gaps, find weaknesses, and then begin to, to fill those gaps and weaknesses by leveraging the, the strengths that we find. Um, and so we've been about that, uh, as I said, for 32 years. We've been fortunate uh, to have participated with the U.S. Partnership on Economic Mobility uh, from Poverty, uh, with the, which is a Gates Foundation-funded project that just concluded in the spring that's helped us think about, uh, has helped us reframe, in a way, uh, our approach to, to asset building uh, and to look at not only how we create out of that asset building, uh, the opportunities for mobility, meaning on-ramps to mainstream economic mobility and uh, the ability for people to, to move, you know, quite literally, if that's uh, something they would choose to do, but also the quality of life in place um, that, that allows people to have uh, the, the, the community that is um, not only that provides them opportunity, uh, but also safety, cohesion, uh, agency, empowerment, etc. Um, and so, so I think um, that's, a, that's a big sort of thing to, to bite off um, in terms of a very comprehensive approach uh, to poverty, not alleviation, but transformation, um, and, and really more disadvantaged transformation, right? Because our communities are, are economically disadvantaged, but not poor. Um, and there's a tremendous richness already there that, that we've been building on. You're listening to Money and Meaning. Find out more about SOCAP conferences, events, and digital ways to connect to the impact investing community at socialcapitalmarkets.net. 
That's such an important point. And it does sound like a huge goal, but also it's such a, a, a large challenge that I think all moving in the same direction towards that goal is what we need. Um, but we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier that we can't really grant make our way out of this. There's just not enough public and philanthropic capital to address a problem like this. So um, I'd like to turn to Alexis McCarthy, who is Managing Director of Growth Strategies at Triskless Foundation. Alexis, I'm sure there's people sitting here who maybe are thinking, this is an interesting conversation. I care about this, but I am not a philanthropist. And um, how can I align my capital in ways that um, are in line with my values? And if I care about investing 10 poverty, what does that mean for the average person? So Triskless was founded with the intent to give those who want to create a donor-advised fund the ability to have as much impact as they can with their assets. And it also was created to um, help individuals who didn't necessarily self-identify as large and impactful you know, philanthropists like Bill Gates or some of the very, very large families it was created to um, make philanthropy approachable for the, the, reg, the regular individual. So it's, a, it's a, an organization that helps individuals that might have certain assets as low as $5,000 who care about having intentionality to their money have as much impact as possible. That's a lot of talk. Now I'm going to just explain what that, what that actually means. Individuals, we have clients that are interested in, in making a difference. They're interested in making a difference with their assets, and they may be interested in supporting somebody like Gabe in his initiative. So we have clients that come to us and say, you know what, I have this, I have this money that I'm going to give away. Instead of just giving it away, I'd like to create a fund. In that fund, before that fund gives money away, it's invested. And a, a huge portion of that investable in those investable assets can be invested and oftentimes are invested in socially responsible companies. They also can be invested in organizations like Greenlight, where there's a, a pool or a, a, a group of investable assets, so to speak, or initiatives, and it, it can be directed in that way. So what we're doing at Triskel is to address um, poverty is we are a facilitator of assets for regular people, not the, you know, not the enormous foundations, not individuals that have the ability to, to move mountains, so to speak, but it is to relay the message to everybody that's sitting here that has $5,000 or more, that has an interest to make an impact, whether it's in your neighborhood here in Philadelphia or if it's in Boston or Seattle or wherever it may be, that you too can have that kind of impact um, by using your philanthropic capital and directing it in ways that have double social impact. So a huge element of what we try to do, we are also a, a nonprofit. You have to be by definition to, to, to own or, or to um, provide donor-advised funds because we give a, an IRS tax deduction as a result of the, the gift or the creation of the fund. But what we're here to do is democratize philanthropy so to, to hopefully fill this gap between the, the very large donors that are doing amazingly good work at the highest level, the Gates, the, you know, all the, the folks that we know, but to get the rest of us all involved here, instead of just thinking that it is the other folks that can make a change or that can be impact investors or that can be social entrepreneurs, everybody can that has the ability to be intentional about their assets, take that step to create a fund, have that money invested in a socially responsible way, and then gift it out at the end. So hopefully that made sense, but it, the, the message is here. We're a conduit. We're, we're not doing the on-the-ground work in the neighborhoods, but we certainly are in terms of education and in terms of facilitating the flows and the funds that are necessary to, to make this work possible. Great. So we heard from a variety of different perspectives about this topic. And I, what I really think about when I think about impact investing, it's such systems change. Um, 
we had a conference that the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia hosted last week in Baltimore, and a big question was around poverty and is poverty a market failure, poverty a market opportunity? So I would say yes and yes. And so that requires um, public-private partnership. And I think a lot of where the exciting things happen is when um, public incentives encourage the flow of private capital um, in ways that otherwise wouldn't be flowing. So if you're not familiar with uh, the recent uh, passing of the Investing in Opportunity Act, creating opportunity zones and opportunity funds, we're at this moment in time where we might we will see um, quite a bit of capital moving into low-income communities, um, so certain places designated in Philadelphia. So if, Anne, you'd like to share a little bit more about how PIDC is thinking about this moment um, when we do have this public incentive incentivizing private capital to flow into communities in Philadelphia, and what does that mean for this conversation? You know, one of the things that I think was important about the designation of the zones and is something that, you know, we uh, get asked about a lot and talk about a lot is, you know, that if you look at the map, and I have actually a few here, um, which, uh, which I can give to folks, um, of where the zones are in Philadelphia, I think one of the things that is is notable is that the zones um, track where we have investment activity and um, you know uh, business activity and some development activity already happening. Um, so you see, you know, out to the West Market Street corridor, um, out to the west side of the city, you see up the North Broad. Uh, corridor, the Broad Street line, um, you know, in the north of the city, um, you see along the Delaware waterfront. Um, so those are some of the larger, um, you know, areas uh, that the zones are contained within. Um, and then there's definitely other pockets of areas around the city as well. Um, and the reason that it was felt that those were the right types of places for the opportunity zones to be designated here is the fact that there's nothing in the um, the legislation that created this program that requires or even structures um, the incentive so that there's any type of a deep subsidy to projects. Um, this is something unlike a program, say, like the New Markets Tax Credit Program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, or even the Historic Tax Credit Program, where the federal government is delivering a direct, um, or well, through lots of indirect structures, um, let's say delivering some type of actual subsidy to the project level, um, like what Gabe was able to do with this this um, uh, expansion in Boston. That's a great example of the use of the New Markets Tax Credit Program, and there's a great benefit to the business or to the project um, with that. This, you know, this program doesn't really have that. I mean, we talk to investors today who tell us that they are not changing their pricing um, when they are going out and trying to deploy equity capital into opportunity zones. And that's not necessarily across the board. There certainly are, are I think, some folks out there that are offering um, some more attractive terms. But a lot of the folks that we've talked to have said, you know, no, we're, we're, you know, we're going to take the tax benefit and, um, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, achieve um, essentially the same equity return that we would have otherwise. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the, the designation of the zones um, hopefully will mean that the areas in Philadelphia that are part of that have enough market activity and enough of the market drivers so that the opportunity zone designation can put things over the edge. So that's sort of how we're thinking about that in terms of, of what we expect the program to do in general. Now, that's what, you know, that, that's kind of the, the lay of the land in terms of the market. And so as we think about what are what is PIDC's role going to be in this, we're thinking about three core things. The first is connect. Um, so we want to um, uh, connect projects and capital. And that's something that we do every day. Um, and so we are at the moment, you know, working on a pipeline of of projects to understand what's happening within the opportunity zones. I just looked before I came out here and there's probably about 180 different projects that are kind of on our tracking list um, of what is is happening um, potentially in those areas already. And that ultimately will kind of call down, um, I'm sure, to a, you know, to a shorter list of, of those that are that are really ready to go. Um, but but that connecting piece um, is really important for us both 
you know, finding the projects that are happening or could potentially be happening in the city and helping them connect to capital. So then we also have to attract the capital. So sort of the attract piece is, you know, being in rooms like this, um, you know, talking with folks that are in the investment side of the space and understanding how do you think about Philadelphia? Because this is a program where, again, you know, you could be sitting with a capital gain um, that you could realize and invest anywhere in the United States. So you can be sitting here in Philadelphia, but that doesn't mean you have to put your dollars to work here. We have to make the case that you should put your dollars to work here for those investors that are here in the Philadelphia region or those investors that are anywhere in the country um, that could you know, come to our market and invest their capital. So we think of attracting that capital as an important role that we will um, try to play as well. Um, and then the third piece is aligning. So to align our existing resources in a way that matches up with the opportunity zones and where we do have more of an ability to create the carrot um, for those investments to be um, more equitable, more inclusive, and to have the positive impact on the communities in which they're located that we would all want to see coming out of this program. So there's nothing, there, there's not to our knowledge yet, because no regulations have been issued, but there's not um, apparently any sticks, uh, you know, coming from the federal government level of the, the program in terms of what you have to do to get this benefit in terms of impact. Um, and we don't have any ability at the local level or at the state level to create like a, a punishment if somebody does investments in opportunity zones that are not aligned with the community needs. So we have to think about what's the incentive, what's the carrot. Um, and so we have created a um, loan uh, pool um, where we will um, in, uh, we will loan uh, debt capital to projects that are also receiving opportunity fund equity. Um, right now, we would probably be able to do somewhere in the range of up to about $2 million um, per project, and we'll put some type of an impact screen um, around that. Um, and we've you know looked at a bunch of different categories. We're working through the specifics of that will try to make it flexible to account for the differences among different communities and what would be high impact um, in in different areas of the city, and um, and then we'll so we'll use our resources side by side um, to try to incentivize capital that is um, going to have the the positive type of impact in a neighborhood or community. Great. So um, in impact investing, certainly we could be deploying our capital um, for, for lots of positive impact. If we are trying to invest in ways that mitigate poverty here in Philadelphia, this is to the whole panel, what does that mean for our return on investment? So if we think about the risk return impact spectrum, how should we be thinking on uh, investment returns here? It's a really good question. Um, I, I, I can speak from the more, you know, we're, we're not looking for a financial return. We're looking for a social return. Um, and we're primarily looking at, in partnership with systems, um, public systems, the question is how much more tax revenue do you bring? Um, how, how, many how much cost savings, right, by agency, whether it's on recidivism or whether it's on um, higher graduation rates, whatever it might be. Um, we can look at the increasing uh, increases uh, in earning potential and, and increases in earnings. It's a great investment we just made, uh, Greenlight just made, in an organization called Compass Working Capital uh, in partnership with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. The idea was Philadelphia Housing Authority got about $400,000 a year from HUD to run a financial coaching program for public housing residents. It was enough to have about 250 families in the program, uh, and they were uh, serving 110. Um, I don't blame PHA. Uh, financial coaching isn't part of their core competencies. Um, and so what I asked PHA was, well, why don't you um, outsource uh, this program to a nonprofit operator that has proven it knows how to do it? Um, and the idea was we can have taxpayer dollars going to programs that get great outcomes, uh, and we can also find ways to, based on this organization, they're, they operate in four different sites across the country. Philadelphia is the fifth and by far the largest. Um, but on average, what their outcomes say is by the end of their program, $7,000 in savings, 150-point increase in their credit score, 
and on average $2,400 in debt reduction. And so if you multiply that times the 500 families or the 1,000 families we'll reach over the next three years, that's fairly significant. Uh, and so while we're not looking necessarily for a financial return, we are able to um, analyze the economic impacts uh, to a city, to a city government, but also to an individual and a household. And it's something we take very seriously. Um, it's our first asset building investment. Our other investments are in com community college completion and employment placement for formerly incarcerated individuals. But in each of those areas, uh, we think about the economic impact to the city and to the individual, and more broadly, particularly in the high poverty neighborhoods that we look at, um, are we able to create a large enough end where we're able to move, try to begin to move outcomes um, in a more place-based way. Uh, Gabrielle said earlier in his remarks that you know his business requires a number of different kinds of, of capital mechanisms. Uh, and I would say that uh, in my business model, the nonprofit business model, the same is true, right? And so if you're asking what, what should the expectation be for financial return to impact investors, then the answer is it depends, uh, right? It depends on uh, the situation, the intervention, the, the structure of the organization that you're investing in, kind of where they are in their organizational life cycle. Um, you know, quite frankly, at Esperanza, uh, as will come, become as, will, this will come as no surprise to anyone in the audience, we, uh, we still fundraise uh, in the traditional uh, grant application style. Uh, we also have sold a $32 million bond on Wall Street to, to finance our camp, the expansion of our 17-acre campus and, and the facilities from which our programs and institutions operate. And so, you know, obviously, in, it, it runs the gamut from there is no financial return to there is a market rate return. Uh, and it depends on the nature of the project and what's the best fit of the financing uh, to the initiative. And, and we, you know, not every organization obviously will find themselves in a position uh, to be able to absorb and, and act on uh, the, the, the types of financing that kind of run the gamut. Um, you know, we've, we've worked with PIDC plenty of times in, in tax credit uh, deals. And um, so it depends. And we fortunately are in a position to be able to consider innovative uh, new methods as well, social impact bonds, as those become uh, sort of more understood uh, for organizations like ours and how we would deploy them. Um, and so I think it really takes a careful partnership between uh, the investor and a conversation around the table around what is it we're trying to achieve here um, and are we matching the, the, the right money to the right project so that everybody uh, gets what they expect out of this, both in financial return, obviously, as well as impact return. And just one more quick note that, that I would say it, that Omar's um, description of the ways that uh, Greenlight is measuring impact to, you know, it, it, return on investment to the city and tax revenue. I mean, uh, you know, there are maybe um, less uh, providers of services like uh, mine than we would want uh, that are capable of doing that kind of analysis, right? And so there's also a place for us to work together around uh, the, the data gathering and analysis around what uh, kinds of impacts and what kinds of returns these different interventions are producing. What we have as Trisclos is, you know, it's our client base and every single one of the accounts is managed separately. So we, there's no pooling. Every single person, every client comes to us has their own set of, of values. And, and that's really what we do. I mean, it's this discussion about what is their, what do they value? So some value certain returns in a certain way, gathered a certain way. Some value the end result after the investment plus the granting at, at the end of it. So it, I can say from example, working with the hundreds of clients that we've had over the years, that there really are no two, it, it's, it, you know, if you choose to really get close to the heart of each one of those investors, so to speak, or grantors, it really depends enormously. I know that's not a great answer, but that's where the beauty of the matching comes too. It's harder, you know, it's harder to find those, those the, the matches, we were talking about this, the match between the per perfect project and the perfect, um, you know, the, the perfect supporter of that project in whatever fashion that may be, financial or what have you. But that's what it's about. So I would say it's, you know, if we open this dialogue up and, and expand the number of participants broadly in this 
practice, so to speak, um, awareness of, of making the community better, you're going to find more matches that are these that are that are harder to find sometimes. Yeah, I, I think I'd echo all that. I, I think yeah. for a lot of investors, and um, you know, it, it is really personal and, and sort of comparing apples and oranges. Um, I would carve out one um, exception as it relates to employment, and particularly if you're the public sector or if you're a philanthropy that directly or indirectly invests in job placement, uh, because there actually are like within that sphere on that playing field, there's actually pretty good benchmarks you have about what it costs to create a job. So like we know that like the American Recovery Act, it, it costs $97,000 of public funding to create a job year, not a job, a job year, right? So the public sector invents like round numbers, $100,000 to create a job for a year. Um, uh, a, a lot of economic impact or economic development projects will end up like at the bottom, you know, it, particularly if there's federal money involved, they, they will calculate a cost per job placement or a cost per job year. Um, if you're a philanthropy that grants money to people who are doing job placement or job training or whatever, it's, it's not, I mean, it, it's pretty easy arithmetic to, to sort of calculate a cost per output of, of a job placement. And, and so within the employment realm, I think that it, it you know, everyone, particularly if you're somebody who's spending money to get those outcomes, you need to blend that into the return and, and, and think about how you, how you do that with the capital you deploy, um, both on the grant side and also on the endowment side. Um, because um, if, if you are spending on your grant side $10,000 per job placement or $5,000 per job placement or $25,000 per job placement, um, you know, you can, you know, you can ask your financial advisors to say like, okay, well, what is the return that I need? Like, if I'm willing, like, I'm paying, I'm willing to pay $25,000 for a job, or I am paying $25,000 for a job, like, how should that impact my return, right? Um, and, um, and I think if everybody um, sort of did that accounting, then, then um, uh, there'd be a much, a much more, like, a much bigger financial imperative to figure out how to deploy um, that capital that's currently on the sidelines, which is you know sort of people's you know like, like the endowment, the the capital that's gonna gets invested in capital markets rather than locally, um, in 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 um, you know in, in employment related um, uh, ventures here. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SoCap Conference, SoCap 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. I appreciate these answers because they're so honest and this problem is just, it's complex, chronic problem. If it was easy to solve, we would have done it already. Mm -hmm. So um, with that being said, I have one more question for the panel because I know you probably all have a lot of questions. But I'm just wondering, earlier, Gabe, you said um, that you failed a number of times and I appreciate that honesty <laughs> as well because I think if we're not failing, yeah. we're probably not trying new things. We're not innovating, taking risks. So what um, have been your lessons learned in this work that you'd like to share with others who care about this? It's really important to have alignment on your management team. Um, I, I think that particularly if you're trying to, um, if you're in one of these businesses, like we're, we're a, uh, a laundry and a social impact enterprise or um, a, a brewery and a social impact enterprise, um, you, you know, if, if, you, if you hire somebody from industry, um, you know, that industry might, like the, the values of that industry might not be aligned with the values uh, of, of, of your impact. Um, and um, sometimes, you know, the, the intersection of those Venn diagrams can be really narrow uh, and, and sometimes vanishing many narrow. And, and so I, I think it's, um, it, it, it's tough. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a really hard uh, assignment. And, and if you get it wrong, it can really hurt. Um, so spend the time to get it right. Kind of top of mind, it's a, a consistent uh, challenge and failure of philanthropy is that we never quite um, take a big enough bite out of the problem, uh, and we're too often tweaking on the margins. Uh, we, I was having a conversation with our board around, um, well, how big is the problem, and what percentage of the problem will this solution address? And sometimes it's 2%, and sometimes it's 12 sometimes it's 20 The question, though, is um, will this investment make a change behavior um, of, of the public systems that interact with it? We think 
if we can do that, um, that we'll be able to, sh to, to create more impact over a longer period of time for many more people than that 10 or 12% that we're serving. So um, we've gotten really good over the last five years in investing and bringing in government partnerships with the Philadelphia Housing Authority, with the Community College of Philadelphia, with the State Department of Corrections, because we see even though the investments we bring will serve 200 to 300 individuals a year, and we know that the individual, the, the larger population is 10,000, 40,000, number of people in poverty is 405,000, what solutions can operate at that scale? Well, what we can do is partner with government to make sure that government is uh, changing its behavior and changing how it funds and what it funds to get better outcomes. But the failure, time and time again, is uh, for us, uh, I feel like we're, we're investing in things that uh, are too small and often disconnected from the, broad, from the broader ability for government or the private sector to change and shift its behavior. And unless we do that, we won't be able to get solutions at scale and change behavior uh, of, of sectors, industries, and markets at scale. Not, not necessarily a, a failure uh, in our operating model or uh, you know, some failure um, in the way the organization has approached problems, but a, a little bit of a failure uh, of long-term vision that we are in the process of course correcting um, is around understanding how the investments that we make in our community build uh, assets and institutions that, that we can then protect and defend those um, so that the benefits uh, of what we've developed over 30 years accrue to the people that are living there today um, and, you know, and, and their families, their um, neighbors, uh, and, and future low-income residents uh, who hopefully will be able to take advantage uh, of the same opportunity and quality of life uh, community that we built. So, uh, so we're um, thinking about how we contextualize our continued investment uh, in the, the growth and development that the city of Philadelphia is seeing and, and what that means um, for neighborhoods that are changing, um, how ours might change uh, in the future if we don't take measures uh, to, to sort of help be part of that uh, shaping. Um, and so that's, uh, it's not been a failure yet necessarily, but something that, that we maybe didn't think about far enough ahead of time uh, until we found um, that, uh, that the changing dynamics in, in other neighborhoods in the city was something that, that we might have to contend with sooner than we thought. Um, and what do we do? Um, what do we do with that problem, which is also a very, very complex and challenging one? For us, it's, it actually touches on, I mean, once again, because there's some overlap here with, with Gabriel and with, with Omar, it touches on both of those things that you mentioned. Um, so for us, it's, it's um, the challenge, or flip it, the opportunity, um, when you're kind of in the, the forefront there of finding those like-minded individuals that understand um, what, uh, what ability they have with their, with their assets, with their funds, to make change. They're really in touch with themselves. They understand deeply what moves them and what they care about, their values, and then um, activating that as well having those conversations, having the time to have those conversations in a meaningful way, deploy the capital uh, in an investable way, and then also in a granting way. So I would say it's, it's identifying those individuals, and then it's also the responsibility of converting a few to, you know, so the education to let people know that, that these are um, options or opportunities for individuals as well. So, it's a lot of work. It's exciting work, but it's it's um, it's challenging. It's really hard because sometimes you talk to people about impact investing and they kind of don't know what you're talking about, or they kind of glaze over, or they haven't taken the time to really identify, you know, what what are their values? Like, what do you really really care deeply about? Because there are a lot of problems to fix, and there are a lot of ways to do it. So. I'd just say maybe the, the magnitude of it all, you know, once again, that's why we're here doing what we do. Um, but those are some of the challenges. That's what kind of keeps me up at night, I'd say. Um, I would, uh, again, um, like to agree with everything that Omar said. Um, so I think that was that, that was really well put. Um, I think the other thing that we haven't done um, as good a job of as an organization is to really keep up um, in terms of being able to move quickly and make decisions and um, 
and use our resources as flexibly as we should. Um, I think that over a 60-year period, so we're a 60-year-old organization, and I think we've adapted and we've changed a lot um, over 60 years as Philadelphia's economy has changed a lot. Um, so I think, you, you know, taking the long view... Um, Hopefully we did a pretty good job with that to where we are today. But I think the pace of change and the shifts in the marketplace and the demands of what that requires from, from us as the city's economic development corporation, we need to get better about keeping up with that and not only keeping up, but maybe getting ahead and, you know, and really moving quickly um, and, uh, and, and making decisions um, uh, swiftly so that we can really meet the needs of the market um, rather than be catching up. Um, to the needs of the market. Thank you for listening to Money and Meaning. We're so glad to be sharing these live events with a wider audience through this podcast. Please check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, for upcoming SOCAP events and leading conversations in the growing impact economy. Join us again next time for Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCapMarkets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.